0: please, to Hebrews and chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, please. I want to read verses 15 to 22. Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. Hear the word of God. Therefore he, and that he there is, uh, Jesus. Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Now, as you know, in the history of the Church, uh, there is something called, in some traditions, the Church Calendar, as a way to mark sacred time. And this Church Calendar revolves around various important days in the life of Jesus, in the life of the Church, in the history of redemption. You know these days, Christmas, for instance, is one. Easter is another. Uh, Ascension is another. Pentecost is a fourth. And so these are sort of stepping stones that can get us through the year. The birth of Christ through the crucifixion of Christ, the resurrection of Christ at Easter. And then when Jesus ascends um, to be seated at the right hand of the Father in power to rule and reign. And he begins his rule and reign then in the context of the experience of the church on Pentecost as he sends his spirit uh, to form the church and to uh, call people to Christ. Okay? So in those particular days, there are seasons in the midst of all those particular days. The most probably well-known is are Lent, right before Easter, and Advent that we celebrate this month. Now, at Grace CPC we're not inexorably tied to the church calendar, but quite frankly, it's pretty easy to fit it in. We don't fit our lives around it, but it fits in nicely with everything we do, because no matter what I'm preaching, uh, I'm, almost, I'm always preaching about Jesus. And so, whether it's his birth, or his resurrection, or his ascension, or, or, his, or Pentecost, it always fits uh, really, quite nicely, during this Advent season, we talk about, we think about the coming of our Lord Jesus. Um, and it's amazing. I don't know how much thought you give to this, in a sense, and I mean this reverently, how bizarre it is what we believe. I when mean, you think about the fact that we believe that a, a young woman gave birth without having ever been sexually intimate with a man, and the one to whom she gave birth had two natures in one person, a human nature and a nature that is divine. That the very eternal Son of God was born as a man through this young girl, Mary. I was speaking on campus this week and I said one of the things I do various times of the year but most especially during this Advent season is I take out a legal pad and on the top of that page because I'm still old and I don't do it on a computer uh, uh, I, I write down God became man and dwelt among us and, it just, I, and then, I, then I want to write all the things that I know about that uh, down on that piece of paper and it takes me the longest time to even get around that idea. But that's what we hold to. Unbelievers who, who, who first come in contact with Christianity almost always struggle over this idea of the Incarnation. The Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. The eternal Son of God taking on flesh. Because it's just amazing to think about God first, but then secondly, God taking on human flesh and dwelling among us. What would that be like and how could that happen and all of that? And it's a good struggle. In fact, sometimes they struggle because they're aware. We just sort of pass it by because we're not thinking. that's really what we believe. That's what this Christmas is about. And it was easy to fit the prophets into that because they're the ones who told us this was going to happen. And now on this particular Sunday, we think about the declaration made uh, by the angels in the particular version that I'm using, the ESV, their, their uh, declaration goes like this, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he, that he there is God, among whom he is pleased. The King James Version and most of your Christmas cards have a glory to God on the, in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Um, that's fine, just a bit confusing, because, you see, Americans think that what this is all about, what Christmas is all about, is being nice to each other, uh, having peace with each other, uh, showing goodwill towards each other. Most of your Christmas cards that aren't profoundly Christian will confuse this and think that Christmas is all about being nice to each other uh, and showing goodwill to each other. They think that's what that means. And so we set aside a day when we're nice to each other. When we put up with Aunt Ethel, you know, for the day, Ah uh, and, and, and we give uh, toys to those less fortunate than ourselves, and all that kind of thing. That's great. I mean, Aunt Ethel probably isn't as bad as you think, and so be nice to her. And, and certainly people who have less than we do, we should give them all we can. I mean, all that's good. But that really isn't the point here, because the peace that comes to earth in Jesus is peace with God, first and foremost. That's the peace, you see, that's being declared. And the goodwill is God's Mm. grace to us. It's His goodwill to us. It's His favor. The NIV, if you have a New International Version, puts it something like, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace uh, to men um, upon whom His favor rests, His grace comes to. Those are the ones who are recipients of this peace, this peace with God. The ones upon whom God gives grace. God gives favor. God is pleased to give to. His goodwill comes to them. You see, it's at God's initiative. And that's what it's about. Now, eventually, as we permeate the earth, we trust that some peace will come among men. And on the new earth, there'll be perfect peace among men. But only because there is this peace that comes with God that He gives us. That's the declaration of the angels. They're saying, In this manger is the very peace of God. Here's, In this manger is the very peace. With God, and so we celebrate that. And it's really easy for us to to think about that in the context of this book of Hebrews. First, because this book of Hebrews is all about Jesus, and it's all about the peace that He has secured. For instance, in chapter nine, uh, in verse nine, we read this little parenthetical which says, which is symbolic for the present age. But then he goes on to say, according to this arrangement, uh, that is the arrangements in the old covenant. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. But deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. If you have a new international version, it says, uh, for the new order. Basically, what the author of Hebrews is saying, which is exactly what the angels were declaring, is that with this Jesus comes, everything will change. In fact, that little word for reformation is an interesting one in Greek. Uh, part of the word is the word orthos, from which we get our word orthodontia, or uh, orthodontist, which means to set your teeth straight. And so what is going to happen is that when this one comes, this new reformation, this this new order, he's going to set everything straight. And what's out of whack, what's crooked is our relationship with God. What's, where there's no peace, he's going to bring peace, you see. And, and, and everything changes. And so then the angels are announcing this. They're saying, sit up and take notice. Nothing's going to be the same from here on out. This is the very heart of the matter for those of you who are into Latin puns. The cross is the crux of all of history. It really is. Because when Jesus comes and through his death, this says that this reformation comes. For instance, then in verse 11, we read this But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves. Uh, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. You see, when Jesus brings peace between us and God, he does it by his own blood. Now now that sounds a bit yucky to be talking about blood. I've had unbelievers say, you Christians talk so much about blood, it just drives me crazy. But when we talk about blood, we mean death. When we talk about death in the context of blood, we're talking about a sacrifice. That's why the term blood is used. A blood sacrifice. That's the, the meaning. It isn't just a, a death that's, that's, if we could say it this way, a normal death. This is a death that has a particular purpose. A death that's a sacrificial death. A death that's to bring something. And the death of Jesus is that which brings peace. Between us and God, He secures an eternal redemption. Now, we don't like to think about that which separates us from God, that which causes hostility between us and God, because it's, it's a little three letter word, sin. And sin, you see, is our waywardness, our heart's desire, our inclination, our bent. A fascination with not following God. And from God's perspective, you see, that's the height of injustice. See, if being just, or if justice, is giving someone what they deserve when we do not honor God as God, we're being unjust. In fact, it's it's the greatest injustice that could ever be. Because he deserves as God Our joyful, loving obedience. That's what He deserves, because He's our Creator. And He's done absolutely positively nothing to cause us to be angry with Him. We have no case at all against God. We have no reason at all to go our own way. Therefore, when we do, that's injustice. And I don't know what you think of when you think of injustice, whether it's someone who's enslaved against their will, or whether it's been someone who's been abused in some way, someone who's weaker, been abused by one who is stronger. I don't know what you think when you think injustice. But what the Bible thinks when it thinks injustice is our sin against God. That we're not giving to Him what He deserves. In fact, we're giving Him the opposite of what He deserves. We're not honoring Him. We're not joyfully, lovingly obeying Him. And because it's an injustice, the great just one of the universe pours His wrath out upon us. And that's the separation from God's perspective. The separation between us and God from our perspective is our own pride. We want to go and do it ourselves. We want to follow our own way, our own wisdom, and when we do that, you see, that separates us from God because we don't want anything to do with him. Because he's God. And we know as God, he's the one he will define and direct us. And we simply don't want that. We want to go our own way. Now the cross, you see, the blood of Jesus, brings reconciliation between us and God. Because from God's perspective, it satisfies justice. He pays the penalty. He takes the wrath that we deserve. And from our perspective, it breaks and shatters our pride. Because when we can see what Jesus has done on the cross, we realize that that's what our rebellion deserves, that kind of punishment. And we realize that it's our sin that is being punished on that cross in Jesus. And we realized His great love for us. And by the power of the Spirit who brings all of that to bear in our minds, it brings us a cleansed, a clear conscience. Clear in the sense that we realize that one who is like us, who stands for us, whose blood is worth ours and more, has been shed on our behalf. And that it only had to be done once. Because God was satisfied with it. And God's wrath is satisfied. Our conscience cleansed. Peace with God. No longer hostility. From his perspective, no case against us. From our perspective, how can we stand prideful before the cross? And thus, reconciliation. Peace on earth among men to whom God's favor rests his goodwill towards us. And so you see, the author of Hebrews, as he's he's writing through this, is, is all about the cross of Jesus, because through the cross, an eternal redemption was secured. And when he speaks of an eternal redemption, he means eternal, that is, for all time. Once for all time. Once done, done. Secure. Eternal. From now until forever. And this redemption meaning... That a ransom has been paid. When we speak of redemption, you know, if you have a coupon, you redeem it. What do you do with a coupon you redeem? You go and you trade it in. You trade it in for, for what's on the small print. If you give me this, I give you, you get that in return. That's a coupon that's redeemable, that you redeem. Redemption means that Jesus gave his life for us. He redeemed us. He bought us back if it isn't too light-hearted to say He traded Himself in for our lives. He gave His life for us. And also that word redemption is used as a ransom payment. Somebody's kidnapped, they get a little note, the family does, that says if you pay X amount of dollars, then you'll get your child back or your husband back or whomever it is that they've kidnapped. That's the ransom price. Once you pay it, the person's free to go. And he paid that ransom that we might be freed. It's a, an eternal redemption. And he secured it. And uh, IV says he obtained it, meaning it's done. At the cross, the eternal redemption of those for whom Christ died was secured. It was done over, freed they would be. And so you see, the author of Hebrews continues to write about this so that we can have assurance. He wants us to be able to have hope. He wants us to be able to to bank on Jesus. He wants us to be able to trust in Him and know that our trust is not in vain. So that we can risk, it isn't a risk, but if I could use that word, we can risk our all on Him. We can lay everything upon Him and know that we won't be disappointed know that we won't be dissatisfied, know that He will, if we could put it this way, deliver on everything that He's promised. It means that we could risk a relationship in order to tell somebody else about Jesus. It means we could risk our jobs if it meant that the only way we could live and glorify Jesus would be to lose it. We could risk our very lives for this. Because it's real, it's true. How could you live in such a way that could bring difficulty on yourself perhaps if you didn't have assurance that it was true? We've been told in this generation that the generation coming up now are postmodern. Now, nobody really knows what that means, because philosophers never really tell us what they mean. That's, that's how they keep their jobs. But, but there's a sense in which, in postmodernity that there's no unifying uh, factor, there's no unifying focus, there's no unifying concept that, that pulls everything together. That is, there's no real absolute truth. And if there were absolute truth none of us would really be able to, to know it because we're so entrenched culturally that, that one person in one culture can't say this is truth because another person in another culture uh, wouldn't be able to see that truth because we're so culturally entrenched. And you see that this undercuts everything the author of Hebrews is trying to do here. And everything that is in Christianity. Now, remember that every generation has at least one philosophical uh, underpinning that attempts to marginalize Christianity. I mean, this is no new thing. There happens to be a, a philosophy that, that undergirds people in, in how they think uh, that, that, that is contrary to Christianity. Because, you see, the author of Hebrews is saying, yes, there is truth. Now, obviously, None of us individually knows everything there is to know about God. Such would be a silly thing to say. In fact, the more I study about him, the more I think about him, the more I walk with him, the more confounded I am about the great mysteries of the faith. He's bigger than I ever thought, and is bigger than I'm even now thinking. We'll know how big he is, that he'll be bigger tomorrow than he is today. But that isn't to say that there isn't truth. That he can reveal to us and convince us of so that we can know. And it's the cross of Jesus, you see, by which he convinces us of his justice and his love. And it's by the work of the Spirit that he draws us to himself. And thus, you see, the author of Hebrews is saying, I want you to have full assurance of hope. I want you to really know this. I want you to really bank on Jesus. I want you to trust your all upon him and so I want to continue to tell you about Him. And He does that over and over and over again. I mean, I have to confess the redundancy of the sermons that I've preached in Hebrews is amazing. Not only are they all about Jesus, but they're, they're all about His dying lately. I mean, I, I can't move verse after verse or passage after passage without coming into contact with this blood of Jesus securing this Eternal redemption. And now, we have another picture here today. Verse 15. Begins with therefore. Now, that little word therefore is there. Because he's tying, again, what he's about to say in with what he has said. He's saying, because Jesus, by his blood, his own blood, by the means of his own sacrifice of himself by his own blood because he secured this eternal redemption because this is sufficient to cleanse our conscience from dead works that we may serve the living God it says because of all that therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now the operative little expression in that whole sentence really is that so that I don't know what it is in other versions I should have looked But he's saying, therefore, he's the mediator of this new covenant. And as mediator of this new covenant, he has a purpose. The reason that he's mediating this new covenant is so that he can make certain, if I could add that word, those who are called will, in fact, receive this promised eternal inheritance. That is, Jesus is working right now as the mediator to make certain that everyone who's called... Get the inheritance. So, if Jesus is the one looking out for your interest as a called one, why should you worry? I mean, that's the reason he's mediating. And a mediator is a go-between. And in a covenant, a mediator is the the one who goes between the parties of the covenant to make sure they maintain fellowship. When they're out of fellowship, then there needs to be a mediator. And We were out of fellowship with God, we were not at peace with him. So Jesus comes as the mediator to bring peace, to to bring us together, to maintain this fellowship. And he's saying right now, he's the mediator and his purpose of mediating, of being the go-between now, is to make certain that those who are called will receive this eternal inheritance. Now who are those who are called? Now we know that not everyone who hears the gospel receives this eternal inheritance. Because some, many, hear the gospel and reject it. So it's not meaning simply those who have the gospel presented to them. But again, it's these ones upon whom God's favor rests. It's upon those with whom he's pleased to give his grace. A little word called is is, is a rather technical term. It means called so that you hear. Called so that you respond. Called so that you obey. The visual for us is Lazarus being raised from the dead. Now that was a calling, wasn't it? I mean, he was dead, dead, dead. Four days dead, the Bible said. King James says he stinketh. I rather like that. It's often an expression on car trips. Who stinketh? You've been there. But he stinketh, right? And so he's really dead. He's been dead a long time. Four days. Jesus, amazingly, stands before that place of the dead and calls Lazarus' name. Now that is what we would call an effective call. It worked. He called Lazarus' name and Lazarus came alive. And that's the power of God's word. Genesis 1. How did God create the world? Word, uh, world, By the word, he spoke. And when he speaks, it brings all of God to bear, you see. And so when God calls in this way, it wakes us up. It brings us life. In the same way that Lazarus was dead physically, human beings are dead spiritually. And when God's favor comes upon a person, when He brings His grace and goodwill, He speaks their name. If you're a believer in Christ, it means He's spoken your name. He's woken you up. As sure as Lazarus was raised from the physical dead, you were raised from spiritual death. In fact, the Bible speaks of this in Romans in chapter 8, very plainly. where The Apostle Paul writes this in verse 28, a verse we all know. Well, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So he's saying that, that there's a, a group of people in the world for whom whatever happens results ultimately in good because God's involved with that. They are the ones who love God, comma. they are the ones who are called according to his purpose. God has a purpose in his calling for them. Verse 29... For those whom he foreknew, not that he knew something about them, but it says he knew them before they knew him. He was intimate with them before the foundations of the world. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, uh, simply meaning that those he, he cast his, his, his affection on, uh, he had a destiny for them. You see, um, when a man uh, sees a woman and he desires her... He has a destiny for her in his mind, perhaps to be his wife. Now, because he's just a guy, it's probably not going to happen. Uh, you know, guys, we that happened a lot before we actually conned somebody in the uh but, but for God, you see, he's God. And so when he knows and he sets a destiny, it works. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that... He might be the firstborn among many brothers and those whom he predestined, he also called. There it is, you see. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That's the kind of calling we're talking about. The kind of calling that always leads to being justified. That is, being declared righteous. That is, having your sins forgiven. That is, being a partaker of this eternal redemption. And so he's saying, listen, Jesus now mediates so that those who are called will receive this inheritance, this eternal inheritance. That is, this inheritance, as Peter puts it, that will never spoil or become defiled or fade away. This inheritance that's kept for us in heaven. And what is that? What's well, all these promises of the new covenant we've been talking about? It's, it's this inclination that God will put in our minds and hearts to love Him and to follow after Him, to, to write His laws upon our hearts. That's this inheritance for those who are called, you see. And Jesus mediates now to make sure that everyone called will have His law put upon their mind, His law written upon their hearts, that their inclinations will change. He mediates right now to make sure that everyone called will know that God is their God and that they belong to Him. He mediates right now to make sure that everyone called knows God. He mediates right now to make sure that everyone called knows that God is merciful toward their iniquities and will remember their sins no more. Now, how does He do that? Well, first, in his mediation on the cross, he brought peace. He secured the eternal redemption. But now, after his ascension, he sits at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning. Now, it's interesting. The author of Hebrews gives us an illustration. Verse 16. He says, For where a will is involved, the death of one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Now, the reason that the author of Hebrews can start talking about a last will in Testament, let's give you a little Greek here, is that the word for covenant and the word for will are the same. A covenant is, in a sense, a will. That is, it's making a promise. A promise to give something to those who meet the conditions. That's a covenant. And a will is when a person sits out and writes out a will and says, these certain ones who meet the conditions of my will uh, will inherit my property. Same kind of thing. But what's emphasized with a will is you don't get the inheritance until the one who makes the will dies. Now that's a bit of a problem for God, isn't it? I mean, you could say, does this mean that God made this will and it said he's going to die and after he dies, all his belongings go to somebody else? Well, of course, on one hand, that's absurd because God is eternal. But on the other hand, the very Son of God became man and died among us. Didn't he? And when he died, you see, the will went into effect so that the inheritance could be freed because he obtained this eternal inheritance. He secured this eternal redemption. And amazingly, you see, that now Jesus lives to guarantee that it will all happen just as his father had planned. You see, one of the disadvantages of making a will is that you never get to live to see if it was really carried out. Right? I mean, you die. And you trust that it will get carried out the way that you wish. But, but, but it may not, because people, some might contest that will in various ways. And, and you're gone, you don't really know. One of the great lines in, in the book of Ecclesiastes, as he laments over the vanity of the world, is that when the rich die, they leave their money to fools. Somebody else spends it all in a way that they would never have spent it. You think, well, boy, if I could only live after I die and watch my money, then I know. But the good news is, you see, that Jesus does. That now he's enthroned in order to make certain that everything promised will go exactly right and to the exact right ones. For instance, Ephesians chapter 1. <clears throat> in verse 16, the Apostle is praying. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of a revelation and the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you. Hmm. The hope to which he's called you. That is, the Father put everything under Jesus' feet and gave Him His head over all things to the church or for the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Jesus rules and reigns. And He he rules and reigns over everything. Nothing is outside of His range. And He rules and reigns in such a way that benefits His church. He rules and reigns in such a way to make sure as He mediates this covenant that we're always in fellowship with God. He rules and reigns in such a way that this eternal inheritance goes to those who are called by God. In Revelation in chapters 4 and 5, there's a picture that the Apostle John sees. You might remember there that John was uh, in exile on an island, Patmos, and the Holy Spirit uh, progressively gave him visions One after the other. And in chapter 4, John sees this vision of heaven. And what he sees is a throne in the center of the universe. A throne in the center of heaven. A throne upon which God seats. And around that throne are 24 other sort of sub-thrones. And elders with crowns are on them. And around the throne are four living creatures. And all day and all night those four living creatures sing, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And when they do that, the twenty-four elders in those sub thrones cast their crowns towards God, and they sing, Worthy o you worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and we created. So this great worship of God. And then John sees in the hand of the one on the throne, in the hand of God, a scroll. And upon this scroll are seven seals holding it tight. And there's a great lament in heaven. And the lament in heaven is this. Who is worthy to open these, this scroll? And you get to think, this scroll is pretty important. I mean, there isn't anybody around at that moment, they can open the scroll. And then, they point to this one, and an angel says, or an elder says, weep no more, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the roots of David is conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So Jesus can open it. And the reason he can open, the reason he's worthy to open it, is because he's conquered. And so he's worthy to open the scrolls. And uh, he takes the scroll, Jesus does, and as he opens it, the angels sing this, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for, meaning because, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Saying, Jesus, you're worthy to open the scroll. Because you see, you've secured an eternal redemption. You've ransomed people, all the called ones. You've ransomed them from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace upon men upon whom God's favor rests. Those very ones. He says, you've done that. Therefore, you can open the scroll. And what the scroll was, was history. What the scroll was, was the events of history. Was the events that would take place. And Jesus rules and reigns over all of those. Why? Because He's redeemed a people for Himself. So what's He doing? He's making sure that those Ones are safe. That those ones will receive this eternal inheritance. And that's what he's doing now. And you may say, well, what's that do for me, really? I mean, really, what's that all about? What it means is this, first of all, that our evangelism will be effective. Because Jesus is ruling and reigning over his New Covenant. He's ruling and reigning over everything for the sake of those He's called. He's ruling and reigning over everything for the sake of those He's redeemed. And so, when that call goes out, when we share the Gospel, you can rest assured that every sheep of God, rest assured that everyone called of Him will in fact come. We need not worry about that. And not only that, you see, but in the course of our lives we can be certain that we will persevere to the end. Why? Well, not because we're particularly strong, but because the particularly strong one, sovereign one, powerful one, is ruling and reigning in such a way to make certain in all the events of history that we will receive this inheritance that's kept in heaven for us. In fact, no matter what circumstance of life comes into our lives we needn't be anxious we needn't worry we needn't become discouraged because Jesus has opened the scroll and his intention in all the events of history is to make certain that all those who are called receive his blessing so we can make certain be certain that we will mature in the faith and we shouldn't be surprised when our desire to love increases because he's at work ruling and reigning in order that his character be formed in us we shouldn't be surprised we find ourselves desiring to be more patient desiring to be kind desiring to forgive we shouldn't be surprised when we find ourselves more